the focus of our study today will be verses 28 through 32. And I think that I've only put verses 28 through 32 on the screen, but I would like to start reading at verse 23. So if you've got a Bible, you can follow along, and then it'll pick up at verse 28. And when he entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching and said, By what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? Jesus answered them, I also will ask you one question, and if you tell me the answer, then I also will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, where did it come from? From heaven or from man? And they discussed it among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he'll say to us, Why then did you not believe him? But if we say from man, we are afraid of the crowd, for they all hold that John was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We do not know. And he said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. What do you think? A man had two sons. And he went to the first and said, Son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterward he changed his mind and went. And he went to the other son and said the same. And he answered, I go, sir, but did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? They said, the first. Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe him. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would continue to bless our time. Help us to understand what has been written. And I pray that you would apply it to our hearts. Lord, search our hearts. See if there is any unclean way in us. Lord, reveal to us our transgressions and our needs. Holy Spirit, push us on our faces before God. Throw us upon Christ. It's in His name that we pray. Amen. You may have a seat. We saw last week an incredible example of our Lord's unfailing wisdom and authority over those who are seeking to kill Him. They asked Him a question. He turned that question back on them. He sort of backed them into a corner with His words. And then He used their silence as evidence against their own evil consciences. And hopefully when you read passages like this, you say with Paul, Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God that He could, at a moment's notice, with no preparation, just put them in a corner and, and close their mouths. Now in that scene, the chief priests and the elders and the scribes, it seems, caught on very quickly to what was happening. In other words, they knew as soon as he asked the question, what would be the aftermath of their answers? And so they had time to deliberate amongst themselves and then they feigned ignorance because they knew either way that they answered the question, they were caught. 
In other words, they saw his wisdom and they avoided the trap, at least publicly. Again, their consciences bore witness to them, but publicly they didn't have to admit that, John, that John's authority was from heaven or that Christ's authority was from heaven. Now today we're going to begin to look at a series of three parables. And all three of these parables are parts of a whole teaching that is used by the Lord to expose and warn these men who've come against Him. The first parable that we'll look at today vocalizes the indictment against these men. The next parable, which we'll hopefully see in two weeks, describes the sentence that is handed down to them because of their, their wickedness. And then the third parable we will read in chapter 22, our Lord describes the execution that will come upon them because of their sin and because of the sentence handed to them. Three parables. And as is often in the case, or as is often the case with a parable, a parable is not quickly understood by the listener. Last week he spoke and they knew what he was doing and they were able to avoid. Now he will begin to speak in parables and parables are not as quickly understood. As a matter of fact, he uses the first two to trap them in their own words. And it's not even until verse 45 of this chapter that says, When they heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. He lets them slide into their own trap, as it were with the first two, and then the third parable he will describe what's going to happen to them in the future. And so now our Lord goes on the offensive, both metaphorically and literally. He's going on the offensive and coming at them to accuse them metaphorically on the offensive, but He actually is going to begin to offend them with His words. And we'll see in chapters to come, He continues this pattern, and they're not happy with it. And so we see here the first parable, which is called the parable of the two sons. Now look with me at verse 28, and we'll begin with just unpacking the parable by itself. First thing we notice when we begin to read this parable is the connection that this parable has with what has just come before. We read these words, what do you think? As one preacher I heard would describe this as the cotton patch version, it would literally be read, what do y'all think? The, the word you is plural. Jesus is still speaking to that envoy that had come to him from the Sanhedrin. And the parable that he's about to tell is spoken directly to them. And hopefully you saw that as I read it, there's no break in the conversation between verses 27 and 28. It's tied intimately with what had just happened concerning his authority, their failure to accept the witness of John the Baptist. And remember, all of this is still nestled in the context of chapter 21 moving forward and judgment that is coming upon fruitless Israel and their religious empire. The second thing we notice from this parable that I think is important we need to understand is the setting Hopefully you can picture this scene as he says, What do you think? A man had two sons, and he went to the first and said, Son, go and work in the vineyard today. Now we're just establishing the setting, but here we have a man who's obviously the ruler, a head of household, a father. He has two sons. 
These two sons are under the rule of their father. And this man apparently owns a vineyard, a place of fruit production, which again falls in with the whole picture here in chapters 21 and 22. Fruit production. This is his business. He works for a prophet. He works. He reaps a harvest of fruit. That's, his, that's the goal of his business. So we have a head of household with two sons whose business is in the production of fruit. So we see its connection. We see the, the setting here. Now let's look at the dialogue that is found in this parable. And this parable is centered around dialogue. It's centered around words rather than detailed actions like we'll see in the next two parables. They center around what the people are doing. Here the focus is more so what they're saying and as we'll see, not doing. So look at verse 28 again. A man had two sons and he went to the first and said, Son, go and work in the vineyard today. The father gives his son a job to do, a duty to perform. Because of the father's authority and the son's uh, submission to that, to that authority, the son is expected to obey. In other words, it is the duty of the son to go to work for his father, the product of which work will be the harvest of fruit. He should go do it. Now, do you remember how I described fruit several weeks ago? The, the uh, biblical idea of fruit. The outgrowth of practical piety, repentance and faith, turning and doing. Keep that in mind as we see these sons who are told to go and to produce fruit. And he answered, I will not. Now parents, I want you to imagine how you would respond if you told your child to go do something and that was their response. I will not. This is almost worse than a no or a I don't want to or, or wait just a minute, just a second. This is worse than that. This is obstinate, brazen disrespect in his face from more than likely an adult son to his father. He openly refuses to submit to the father. He's rude. He's careless. I will not. But afterward, he changed his mind and went. Now this is not a parable meant to teach you children, what is right and proper obedience? If we wanted to just ask what, which son obeyed properly, the answer is neither one of them. Neither one of them went as soon as they were told. Obedience must be immediate. And anything else is disobedience. But that's not the point here. The point is, is which, of the, which of these sons actually went to accomplish what the father told him to do? So this son, but afterward, he changed his mind and went. That is, after the original command and his original refusal, at some point after all that, he changed his mind. Now the word here, changed his mind, is important. It's not the same word that is used throughout the, the, the primary word in the Scripture for repentance, metanoia. There's another word, metanoeo, which is also used. This is not either of those words, but you can hear a similarity. This word is meta melomai. Meta meaning change, and melomai meaning his care, his thoughts, his 
consideration. Still very similar to this idea of repenting. And it assumes that there was a definitive moment where he started thinking or caring, considering differently. And so afterward, because of something he saw, something he experienced, because of some change, he he changed the way he thought. Afterward, he changed his mind and went. That is, he carried out the will of his father. It is implied he went and worked in the vineyard just like his father had commanded him. He went to labor and bear fruit for his father's business. And so we have here son number one, who is at first openly and fragrantly, or flagrantly, not fragrant, flagrantly disobedient, and then afterward he changes his mind and submits to his father. Then we come to the second son. In verse 30, And he went to the other son and said the same. That is, again, it is implied. He went to the other son and said, Son, go and work in my vineyard today, or in the vineyard today. And this son answered, I go, sir. Now again, parents can imagine this response from your children. For many of us, you might have to actually only imagine it. But you can imagine if you told your, your child, go clean your room or go pick up that out of the floor. Go help your mother with this. And they said, I go, sir. And I mean, we would like that. For a lot of us, we're still trying to get our kids to understand that sir is for a man and ma'am is for a woman. Once we get that stuff cleared up, hopefully the other things will follow. This is obviously different from the way the first son answered. This is very respectful, very courteous. He is quickly and verbally compliant. In other words, he appears to be submissive. On the surface, all is good. But... He did not go. And he answered, I go, sir, but did not go. He did not go work in the vineyard. Now it's important to notice that it does not say, and afterward he changed his mind and did not go. He said, I go, but didn't go. Contrary to what he had led on, he does not actually fulfill the will of his father. He does not go into the vineyard to bring forth fruit. So here we have a son who is immediately and really deceptively compliant, but he never had any intention of obeying his father. That was never his purpose. He didn't have to have a change of mind to not go. He never planned on going. Both of these sons received the address of son, a term of endearment. Both of them had familial obligations to their father's business to work and to produce fruit. One at first said, I will not, but afterward changed his mind and went. The second one at first said, I will, but did not go. And then the fourth thing we need to see in this parable is is really the main point. At the beginning of verse 31, Jesus then turns back to his audience, the chief priests and elders and scribes, and says... Which of the two did the will of his father? Which of them carried out the command that was given to him? They, that is the religious leaders, said, the first. And they are correct. And they have just condemned themselves. Now, did you you catch it? 
that when they said the first, they were caught. They have condemned themselves. That's the parable. The second main heading I want us to see is the explanation of the parable. Jesus then proceeds to explain himself. Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. Still speaking in the plural to these religious leaders, tax collectors were basically civil traitors who worked for the Roman government who extorted money from their Jewish brothers, their kinsmen. Prostitutes, women who made their living from fornication. When we read tax collectors and prostitutes, this is Matthew's way of saying the worst of the worst. The most wretched. These were excommunicated deviants. In the perception of an Israelite, you could not be any more vile than a tax collector or a prostitute. Now I want you to imagine Matthew's thoughts as he hears this originally and as he records it in his gospel. Matthew, the ex-tax collector, now turned apostle of the Lord Christ himself, as he writes, is a testimony to this fact that tax collectors were entering the kingdom of heaven. Imagine if in the original text it had said, liars go into the kingdom of God before you, adulterers, thieves, religious fakers, fornicators, self-righteous hypocrites, moralistic people-pleasers, oblivious pagans into the kingdom before you. Such were some of you. Such were some of us. That's Matthew's mindset as he hears this. He would say, yeah, tax collectors do get in because I used to be a tax collector. That's me. But you were washed. Matthew was washed. Levi, the tax collector, was called and sanctified. He's now Matthew, the apostle of Christ. Again, it's, it's simply astonishing the immediate and eternal relevance of every word that comes out of the mouth of Christ. And he wants these religious leaders to see that the people that they consider to be beyond hope, beyond restoration, as a matter of fact, if they came back, we really wouldn't want them to be, we wouldn't want them after that. They were, in fact, becoming citizens of God's heavenly kingdom ahead of before these religious leaders. Now, what makes these wicked sinners so special? that the most vile would be able to get in. Well, he tells us. For John came to you, again plural, John came to y'all in the way of righteousness, and y'all did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. John came in the way of righteousness. He came and he was godly in word and in deed. He carried out a life of the, the strictest asceticism according to, to godliness and, and ancient Jewish vows and they wouldn't believe Him. Everything that they put on like they believed and were trying to live, John actually lived it and went a step further. And what did they say about Him? He's got a demon. He's demon-possessed. They wouldn't believe Him. But tax collectors 
and prostitutes did believe John. They believed his message of repentance. When he said, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world, they all turned and looked and said, That's him. We can see that in Luke chapter 3 and verse 12. Here's proof. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? They were repenting. They were turning. They realized something in their minds, in their actions, had to change because of what John was preaching. Jesus continues, And even when you saw it, notice that emphasis, even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe Him. When these religious leaders seen what was happening in the hearts and the lives of the most vile of sinners, which is the testimony of John's ministry and every ministry, that's the testimony. Look at the lives that are being changed. They saw it, and even after they saw the undoubting, undoubtable change, they did not change. But afterward, notice this phrase, after you did not afterward change your minds. The very same word that's used in verse 29, metamelomai, you did not change the way you cared, the way you considered, the way you thought. It is judgment upon the religious people, the religious leaders, that the most vile were being changed, and they wouldn't. This is a sign of judgment upon them. And this is, I think, the very reason that many nominal and self-righteous church folk despise seeing a great transformation and joy that comes into the life of someone whose past isn't as squeaky clean as theirs. It's, it's because it's judgment upon them because they have no change to testify to, past or present. And so it, it just makes them look bad. It shows that their profession is spurious because you see someone with a dramatic and drastic change and you've got nothing? That's what's happening here. They, they, they didn't want to believe. They would not believe. So what's this parable meant to teach? I'll read this here. These men who claimed so much spirituality and knowledge and who were opposing Christ had ample opportunity to turn and repent and believe through the ministry of John the Baptist, and yet they would not. Rather, it was tax collectors and prostitutes. It was the most despised in the community who were hearing and repenting and believing. Both groups had seen, both groups had heard, but only those who believed were changed by what they saw and heard, were given entrance into the kingdom of God. And again, here's another proof of this from Luke chapter 7, verses 28 to 30. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. And here Luke adds parenthetically, when all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by Him. They could give lip service all day long to the precepts of the law. As one commentator says, they were scrupulous observers of outward form. They would hear, I go, sir, and they would love it. As a matter of fact, they themselves could say, I go, sir, 
a thousand times every day, and yet they never had any intention of actually doing the will of God. So, here's what we need to learn. We talked about fruit several weeks ago and repentance. Here again, true heartfelt repentance is what God requires, not repentance in word only. Repentance is not confession. Repentance is not admission of guilt. And we have to understand that. Very often we say, we might say, well, I, I repented of that. Well, I, I hope you did, but that doesn't just mean you prayed and said, God, I'm a sinner and, and I've done wrong. Right. Or you got with an accountability partner and said, I'm struggling here. That's not repentance. Repentance is more than just words. It is an actual change wrought in the heart and the mind of a person by the Spirit of God. And very often, it might take a little while before you can say, I repented. You have to wait and see if, the, if there's fruit being born that keeps with repentance. True, heartfelt repentance is what God requires, not Repentance in word only. See, your flesh and the evil one works to convince you that going along in order to get along and in order to save face in front of Christian folks in this life is somehow more profitable, more pleasing, will bring more benefit than just admitting you're a sinner, that you, your life is a lie and turning to the Lord. That's what these men couldn't do. They had kept the lie so long that even when they had the opportunity, it was right before their face, they had to save themselves. They had to defend themselves before the people. Many become convinced that the expected or assumed embarrassment of being exposed in this life is somehow more terrifying than hell. That people knowing the truth about you, that you're a sinner just like they are, is somehow a worse punishment than everlasting torment. Now that's silly, isn't it, when I describe it that way? Isn't that foolish? But the devil does it and our flesh does it. You're, you fear men, more often more convinced by your fear of men of what you shouldn't do than by your fear of God and the judgment to come about what you should do. And though you may have some fooled in this room, you may have carried on under false pretenses all the way up until this very moment. Listen to me, it would be better right now to say, the gig is up. Turn in true repentance than to continue one more second just mouthing a profession. It would always be better. Only the former, only turning, a true turn is characteristic of true salvation. Only the former leads to life. Only those who've really and truly repented will enter the kingdom of God, not those who've made a decision. You're not going to enter the kingdom of God just because you rearrange the deck chairs on the sinking ship of your life. That's not repentance. It would be better that you had never been born than to die and get to heaven and hear God say, well, you convinced all of them, but I'm not fooled. So, does your life 
past and present, testify to a true turning. It should. If there's been true repentance, then your life will show a true turning. And we can use the Lord's parable here and the explanation of it to, uh, to lay out sort of a blueprint for true repentance. And we can ask ourselves some questions to determine whether or not we have actually, truly, from the heart, been granted repentance from God. Notice three traits that are found in this passage, or in this parable. The, there was a word of command that came from the Father. I would parallel this with the Word of God coming. And I think most commentators would agree this is a picture of God speaking to His people. Secondly, there was afterward a change in the thinking by the first son. In other words, there was at first disobedience, which is true of all of us by nature. We're all sons of wrath, children of wrath by nature. That's, that's true of everyone, but then He changed. And that's the target that we want to hit. That's what we want to know. Have we made the change? But it doesn't stop there because then after the change, there was also a change in His doing. He went. He obeyed, and that's the ultimate test. Is there actual evidence that the inward change has taken place? So, has there been a true biblical work of repentance in your heart? We'll answer these three questions. Number one, has there been the plain utterance of the Word of God? We know that God commands all people everywhere to repent. And that command goes out all over the world all the time from the lips of God's servants who are engaged in preaching and evangelism. We also know that the gospel is the power of God for salvation. Paul says in Romans 1, I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek. In other words, it is only through the Holy Spirit's use of the proclamated or proclaimed, heralded, preached gospel of Jesus Christ that salvation will ever come to any man, any woman, any boy or any girl. The gospel is the power. We also know that we're born again through the living and abiding Word of God. Peter says, You have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding Word of God. And he goes on to say, And this Word is the good news that was preached to you. The living and abiding preached gospel is the means through which men are born again. And so when I say, have you, have you had a true inner work of repentance, I'm not asking, have you experienced a major catastrophe in your life? Like a car accident or the, the death of a dear loved one or a life-threatening disease where you came out of it and you said, you know, I need to think about life a little more seriously now and take things seriously. I'm not asking if there's just been a, a definitive uh, moment in your life like a marriage or a child's birth or the coming of age into adulthood where you said, you know, I need to, I need to settle down a little bit and, and maybe consider some more serious things. I'm not asking if you've just made a decision to improve yourself after 
trying and, and failing over and over again in life, you say, well, I'm going to try something different that, that hopefully will bring me the pleasure that I'm seeking in life, and so why not try Christianity? All of these might lead to a purely emotional upheaval, but that's not what gets anyone to salvation. If something, if these things or anything like this is the root or the ground of whatever you call salvation, it's not biblical salvation. Only the Holy Spirit working through the gospel can produce salvation. Not stories, not personal testimonies, not invitations to heaven or God's best or, or finally getting, figuring out what your purpose is in life. None of that. You can raise your hand for that stuff all day long. There will be no salvation. So I'm asking, has there been a time in your life when the gospel of Jesus Christ has been preached to you clearly and the Holy Spirit worked in your heart through that preached gospel, the utterance of the word of God from God, not just a man saying the word of God, but an utterance of the word of God to you. You see, God is good. And God is kind, and God is patient, and God is loving, and God is merciful, and God is tender, and God is all-knowing, and God is just, and God is holy, but you and I are none of these. We are not good, we are not kind, we are not patient, we are not merciful, we're sinners. And because God is just and holy and perfect, He must punish sinners. He has to. There's no way around it. He has to punish sinners. So we have this problem now. We have this loving God, and we are His creatures created to serve Him and to worship Him, and yet because of our sin, we can't even come into His presence because He's so holy. And so God, out of love and mercy and grace gave His Son, He sent His Son to take our form, our flesh, to live according to the perfect righteousness of God because we can't and haven't. And then He died on the cross because the wages of sin is death and we don't want to and ultimately can't because we're not God. We can't bear the weight of the sins we've committed against an infinite God. It had to be a God-man. Because flesh had sinned, flesh must die. And so Christ came and took on flesh. He lived as a substitute for sinners. He died as a substitute for sinners. He was raised from the dead as a substitute for sinners. And so now, through faith, that is, clinging to Christ by faith, you get His life, which is perfect, his death, which is sufficient, and His resurrection, which is our hope. You get all of that when you take hold of the person of Jesus by faith. Now my question is, has there been a time when you have heard that gospel or some form of that same gospel accompanied by the inner working of the Holy Spirit making it effectual and producing within you a new Creature. Again, everybody just heard it. I'm not asking if you heard it. Unless you're deaf, you heard it. 
I'm not asking if you learn the truths, because I just told you the truths. The demons of hell heard everything I said, and they believe it a whole lot more than we do. I'm not asking that. I'm asking, has it come to you with the power of the Holy Spirit and created a new creature within you? Apart from that, there's no repentance. There's no true repentance apart from that gospel. Your friends, your loved ones, your co-workers, people on every nation under heaven, and you yourself, there will be no salvation. They will not be saved if they do not hear that message. But accompanying that message, if the Holy Spirit chooses to work, accompanying that gospel, there will always be repentance. If He works in, a, in an effectual way and saves you, there will always be true repentance. So has there been a plain utterance of the Word of God in your heart? Secondly, has there been a significant change in your thinking? Do you think differently than before? Do you desire differently than before? Is your heart set on Christ and His honor and His glory and His praise and His kingdom and His work above everything else? Nothing else in the world even compares to the way to Christ Himself. Can you testify to a transformed mind? Romans 12, 2 says, be not, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. That is, don't have your mind set here, have your mind set there. Can you say that? My mind's not here, my mind's there. Can you testify to captive thoughts? Paul says, We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. Not you, Him. When you think of your thoughts and, you, and, and what just consumes your mind throughout the day, can you say, My thoughts are not here, they're there. My thoughts are not on me, they're on Him. Can you say that? My thoughts are different. They're not focused on myself, my needs, my desires, my aspirations, my dreams. When I think about the Lord, I just delight in Him, not because of His gifts that I even want or need, but just because of who He is, His person, Christ. My thoughts are with Him. Has there been a significant change in your thinking? And thirdly, is there an observable change in your doing? Can you testify that the things you once did and enjoyed doing, you no longer enjoy? And the things that you once hated the very idea of doing, you love? Can you say that my old actions are gone? Paul in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 11, says, And such were some of you, but you were washed... You were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. In, in that passage, after having just listed all of these grievous sins that will keep one out of the kingdom of God, he points to the Corinthian church and he says, and such were some of you, and you know it. You know what you were. You used to be just like that, but you were washed. Back then, you were like that, but no longer. All of those old actions are gone now. Can you say old actions are gone? Can you say that there's new fruit growing in your life? Listen to this. 
as Paul describes what took place in the church of Thessalonica when he wrote to them. Verses 5 and 6 of the first chapter, he says, The gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. That's what I meant when I said, Has the word of God come to you? Has the utterance of the word of God come to you? Has it come in power with the Holy Spirit and full conviction? He says, You know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord. 1 Thessalonians 2, 13 and 14. He says, We also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. For, here's how we know it, it was at work, you brothers became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. What happened when the gospel came to Thessalonica? They became imitators of godliness. They became imitators of other Christians and other churches. In other words, when the gospel came in power, it changed how they acted. They began to act differently. They began to obey God, to delight in His law, to search out His commandments and conform themselves to holiness. They started mirroring the holiness that they had seen in the lives of other believers. Whenever true repentance takes place, you will start producing fruit. That's what happens. You start looking and mirroring holiness. In other words, you go to work in your father's vineyard and you begin to produce fruit. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Work, labor, it's effort. The Christian life is a striving. It is a pressing forward and a fight. And when you, are, when you experience the Word of God in power that changes the way you think and changes the way you act, you go to work. It's not, it's not a, a laziness. You're not redeemed for... Uh, sitting around. You work. So, let me ask again. Has the Word of God come to you simply, plainly, and with the power of the Holy Spirit and conviction? And has there been a change of your thinking and a change of your doing as a result of the Word of God? It's very easy to say, I go, sir. Vocal profession is simple. Anybody anywhere can say, I've done those things. But know this. The flaming eyes of the Lord Jesus Christ knows your heart at this moment. And He knows whether or not your profession is real or if it is fake. And it would be better today if you would say, look, for a long time, I've made a false profession. It was fake. And you repented today. It would be better to repent than to suffer in eternal agony. For all of eternity, the only assurance you would have would be, at least I fooled my church friends. So examine your heart as we prepare for the Lord's table.